Welcome to the Daily Authors Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Gindle, and on today's lovely episode, I'm speaking with the talented Stephen Post, author of God and Love on Route 80, The Hidden Mystery of Human Connectedness. Stephen is a multi-best-selling author, professor, and leader in medicine, research, and religion. He's a professor in the Department of Preventative Medicine at Stony Brook University and the founder and director of Stony Brook Center for Medical Humanities, Compassionate Care, and Bioethics. He's among a handful of individuals awarded the Distinguished Service Award by the National Alzheimer Association. In 2001, he founded the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love, which researches and distributes knowledge on kindness, giving, and spirituality. A frequent contributor to major magazines and newspapers, including The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, and Time Magazine, Stephen has appeared on The Daily Show, among other national television programs. So if you're ready to uncover the hidden mystery of human connectedness, then stay tuned for this episode of The Daily Authors Podcast with Stephen Post. Hey, by the way, if you're ready to write your book today, you can head on over to writeabookuniversity.com forward slash free and get a free four-lesson video course that'll help you on your journey to writing your book. Welcome to the Daily Authors Podcast, a daily podcast all about books and the authors who gave them life. Each episode, your host interviews a new brilliant author as they reveal inside information about their incredible books and inspiring lives. Now, here's your host, Aaron Gendel. All right, Stephen, thank you so much again for joining me on the Daily Authors Podcast. Uh, we're here to talk about your book, God in Love on Route 80, The Hidden Mystery of Human Connectedness. And thanks again for joining me on the show. Sure. It's a pleasure. Hey, before we jump into your book, Stephen, it, let's just tell the listeners, if you could, a little bit more about yourself, your work, and what you're up to right now. I'm sitting in my office at Stony Brook University School of Medicine. I've been teaching for most of the day, doing some clinical counseling and uh, trying to keep a low profile. Uh, <laughs> that's about it. Uh, I have a new book out called God and Love on Route 80, uh, which is a very exciting book, one that I've always wanted to write. It's not the first book I've written, but it's probably the most meaningful one. And I'm happy to be speaking about it. That's great. Well, let's just talk a little bit more about it. Uh, perhaps you can give the listeners that 30,000 foot view of your book, God and Love on Route 80? Well, it's a book about one mind, a concept that Larry Dossi has made very popular with a book of that title. Uh, and it's essentially about the reality of human connectedness in the context of an infinite mind in which we all participate. So it's a little bit Jungian, Carl Jungian, in the sense of a collective unconscious. It's a little bit Einsteinian in the sense of an original mind. It's uh, very much like uh, Ramanujan, the Indian mathematician who around 1900 was simply praying in front of his goddess down in southern India, and he was writing formulas down in the dirt with his right hand. Uh, he'd never studied mathematics. He was only an adolescent. But through that incredible experience came his notebooks, which are at the very center of Trinity College Library, Cambridge, and the basis of quantum physics in the modern world. So really, 
it's a book about the idea of uh, a one mind in which we all participate. And it's fundamentally, it's a story about a journey that I had from early on in adolescence and that has carried me all throughout my life. Uh, it really begins with a dream I had when I was 15, which I'd be happy to tell you about. Yeah, love to hear it. Well, I was 15. I was at a boarding school in Concord, New Hampshire, called St. Paul's, an Anglican place. It was beautiful. I loved the culture. I loved the fall leaves. I used to read a lot, and uh, there were wonderful people there. When I was 15, I had a dream, which is really where the book begins. It was early morning. I wasn't sure if I was asleep or awake, and I would see repeatedly about five or six times over the period of a year, a misty, gray, silvery morning on a road headed to the west. Couldn't see very far. And then just faintly, I could make out the contours of a kind of a stringy, blonde-haired youth who was leaning out over a bridge and ready to jump. Then the mist would disappear. And I would see the face of a blue angel, a feminine face, and it said in a feminine voice, if you save him, you too shall live. And then the dream would dissipate. So I talked with my teachers. Rod Wells was a really great Episcopal priest who knew Alan Watts, the Buddhist. I talked with a lot of my friends about this, and we kind of molded around and wondered, was it a serious dream? Was it just some concoction of my brain? Uh, lo and behold, though, when I was 16, Rod Wells, my teacher, took me down from Concord to New Haven, Connecticut. I'd never been to New Haven before. And uh, we visited Yale Divinity School. He was a graduate of Yale Div. And we were the guests in a class run by a guy named James Diddies, who was a famous Jungian at the time. Uh, and uh, I was able to tell my story of the dream to about a dozen or so assembled students, all training for ministry, adolescent spirituality. Uh, they asked me what I thought the dream meant. Well, I said, up there in New Hampshire, we all read Emerson's essay on the oversoul, but I think I'm probably the only one who actually believes it, that somehow our minds are more than matter, more than brain, more than chemistry, but that they have a certain kind of non-physical or non-material quality. And we don't understand that very fully, but it connects us and it connects us with, with God in ways that can be quite uncanny. So we had a really great three hours. Uh, we then went back to New Hampshire. A couple of years later, or about a year later, actually, I was home. I had a job in the Bronx that Rod had helped me get, tutoring kids. I, I did that in New Hampshire. I tutored French-Canadian kids across the street from St. Paul's, and I enjoyed that a lot. It was something that meant a lot to me. So I was looking forward to a great summer of tutoring. Uh, but my parents were very upset. This is down in New York because they said, look, you can't do this in the Bronx because the part of the Bronx you want to tutor in is so incredibly dangerous. And I explained to them that I really didn't agree with that, but 
after a couple of days of some serious arguing, uh, my mother said that, in fact, she wasn't going to help me out with the tuition for college. I was headed for Swarthmore unless I gave up on this idea. My mm -hmm. dad supported her. So I did relent, and uh, I said, Dad, where am I going to work this summer? My dad was the president of W&J Sloan's department store on Fifth Avenue in New York, and he knew all the furniture manufacturers and the lamp manufacturers in greater New York. So he said, well, you can work in Bill De Bono's lampshade factory. <laughs> so I did that. I spent two weeks in Bill's lampshade factory between two rather large, uh, I will say this respectfully, very large Italian women. There was no air conditioning. And I was cutting cardboard. I was driving dad's Mercedes 190, which was the secondhand car that had seen a lot better days, which I think he bought really to take us up to St. Paul's and look kind of cool in the process. They had their own little family car. So I would drive this to the factory. And after a couple of weeks, I gave up on this and drove out to West Hampton Beach one Friday night where I had some friends. At about 11 o'clock at night, I decided, you know, I'm not going to stay here because I'm not working in this lampshade factory and things are a little bit edgy at home. Uh, plus, I feel the lure of the dream to the West. So there was kind of a push and a pull. I forgot to say that when I was at Yale Div School, they asked me, so where are you going to college? I said, well, I applied to Reed College in Portland, Oregon, because uh, I just thought it was in the West and it felt like I should. And of course, no St. Paul's kids ever went to Reed. They all went to Ivy League places. Huh. Uh, so they were a little worried about this. But I said, don't worry, we'll see. Anyway, so I, about 11 at night, I drove west on the Sunrise Highway. I drove west on the Long Island Expressway, went through the Midtown Tunnel, went over the George Washington Bridge. I'd never driven west of the bridge before, but uh, just followed the sign for Route 80 West. Tense. God and love on Route 80, okay, in case you're wondering. And I got out about five in the morning. I was in the middle of Pennsylvania at the Lewisburg exit. Back in those days, cars had something called a generator. And when the generator broke, all the lighting and the engine of the car just immediately died, and you were lucky if you could get off the highway. Well, just before this happened, by the way, I was thinking, you know, I'm going to turn around just go home and I can have my reputation intact. But as fate would have it, and I thought it was an act of God at the time, the car stopped. And I was on the right shoulder. All I could see was wheat fields, corn fields for miles and miles. There were no telephone booths around. So I took a piece of paper out of the glove compartment and I wrote a note to the Pennsylvania State Police. Please return this car to Henry A.V. Post, 44 Davidson Lane, West Islip, New York. Gave his phone number from his son, who no longer works in the lampshade factory. <laughs> Took my classical guitar, a couple of books I was reading, like Siddhartha, sort of journey books. I had $50, put my thumb out, and a big white truck came by. A guy named Gary flung the door open. He was country and western. He said, where are you going, boy? I said, West, he said, I can get you to Chicago and got to Chicago. I spent a couple of days, this is in a nutshell now, <laughs> Grant Park, and I ran into a group of hippies. So they were going to San Francisco and I took a ride with them. When I got to 
Lincoln, Nebraska, Route 80 runs through Lincoln. One of the gals said, hey, you've got to call your mom. Uh -huh. About five days since I left. So I said, okay, I called her collect. She said, oh, Stevie, you're alive. I can call off the Pinkertons. <laughs> and I said, mom, why did you call the Pinkertons? Didn't you get my note? Which was a terrible thing to say. But anyway, they got they got my note and they got the car. It was in a shop now on uh, in New York being repaired. And I said, I'd like to go out to Cousin George's for the summer. Cousin George had been in Vietnam. He was a building superintendent in the Mission District. So she said, yeah, I guess you can do that. I said, what's what's her his address for Chenery Street? So I went out to 4 Chenery Street and uh, spent the summer with George on the floor. In the mornings, I would come to a Nichiren Shosho Buddhist temple and chant, Nam Yoho Renge Kyo. I had a classical guitar with which I played Villalobos and Granados in Hispanic restaurants. I had an old Japanese-American named Gus who had actually been interned during the war. And he kind of looked over my shoulder and, and kept me on the up and up. I was happy to stay there, I thought, for the rest of my life. I really had no need to go to college. I was earning pretty good money for a while. Uh, but I drew a very bad draft number, and it looked like I was headed for Vietnam. This is late Vietnam. And so uh, I called the people at Reed, and I said, you really need to open a place up for me again. I turned them down, because otherwise I'm going to have to go, uh, go to Vietnam, and I don't really agree with that war. So they let me in. And one, one morning, I, I, in front of the temple with George and Gus and a bunch of others, I went on my way on the Market Street bus. I walked across Golden Gate Park, about a 10-minute walk, and I walked across the Golden Gate Bridge. It was early in the morning, about 7.30 or so. It was very misty. It was gray. It was silvery. I really couldn't see more than about four feet in front of me. I got to the middle of the bridge. The bridge is a relatively flat bridge, but it does curve up a little bit. I was on the left pedestrian walkway, and there was a little uh, railing by my side that was roughly waist high. And I thought I heard a little shuffling on the other side of the railing. And I looked over there, and there was a youth uh, who kind of resembled the young person I'd seen in my dream. He had stringy blonde hair. Wow. Uh, he was leaning out over the water and it looked like he was ready to jump. So I said to him, I truly hope you're not planning to jump. And he said, what's it to you? He became very defiant. He started quoting Shakespeare, Macbeth, that life is an empty nothingness. And I said, you know, I sometimes feel that way myself. And by the way, I said, you do a good Macbeth, and it's more meaningful when you're out there on a ledge about to jump into the water than it is at Memorial Hall at St. Paul's School in New Hampshire. So uh, we talked a little bit, and uh, I said, look, I think you should rethink what you're doing, because I kind of feel like I had a dream. It was two years ago. It was 3,000 miles away. Yeah. But I think I had a dream, and I think you were in it. And so I'm here to talk with you. And look, I, I had a dream. Uh, I had an argument with my folks. I left a car on Route 80 near Lewisburg with a sign for the Pennsylvania police. I came all the way out here, uh, went to a lot of trouble, obviously, and I think we're supposed to be talking. So he thought I was crazy. <laughs> he 
he said, I should have been out there on the ledge, not him. And I said, well, that's probably true because I think we're all a little bit out of the ledge. We're all looking for meaning. And I said, but look, I've got something for you. If I give this to you, your whole life is going to turn around. And he said, what is it? And I said, it's a Gohon zone. And the Gohon zone is a Japanese scroll. It cost me $50 from the Nichiren Shosho Buddhists. And I said, if you take this scroll, I pulled it out of my backpack, you can have it and your life will be good. It's, you know, Buddhists like tokens and sort of charms and good yeah. luck. So I said, if you come over the ledge and come on my side, I will unroll this and I'll explain it to you in detail. So he actually came across, his name was Harry, and I uh, unscrolled this and I explained some of the symbols, you know, the Japanese symbols for one mind, for universal connectedness, for premonition and such things. And I said, you can have this, but you have to do me one favor. You have to walk south on the Golden Gate Bridge. I had to walk north to get to Oregon. And I gave him some money. I said, take the Market Street bus, walk across the park, take the bus. And I wrote him a little note, which is actually in the book, to my cousin George. This is Harry. Please let him sleep on the floor and bring him over to meet Gus and the people at the temple and see if you can help him turn his life around. So we shook hands, uh, and Harry actually did walk south. And I walked north feeling somehow really elated that I had this incredible experience of what Jung would call synchronicity, just completely uncanny and probable experience that had a kind of causality, but not normal cause and effect, something that was much different than that, really that was the work of, if you will, a cherishing, loving God. So as I walked uh, north on the bridge, uh, I felt pretty euphoric about this, got down at the end of the bridge, stuck my thumb out, and a little pickup truck stopped by. The guy looked out. He said, hey, I'm going north. My name's Dwayne Dill, D-I-L-L, just like in Dill Pickle. And this here's my wife, Dorothy. We're from Santa Rosa, but jump in. So they gave me a ride most of the way to Oregon. And there I was at Reed College. I was studying with Robert Bly, the great Jungian poet, uh, there were other wonderful people there, too. And long about, this is now episode two. This is not a memoir. It's a series of episodes about how we're more linked by this universal mind than we really sometimes appreciate. So late January. And, you know, uh, it doesn't snow in Oregon, but it rains a lot. And it gets kind of cold in, in the winter, slushy. So about nine o'clock one night, I was sitting in the coffee shop. A guy came bounding in. His name was Andy. He had a leather jacket on. He was a little bit wild-eyed. And he said, I've got a brand new Harley Davidson shovel hauser. Who'd like to go for a ride? And I, like a complete jerk, said, I'll go. So I went out, got on the back of this bike, and he took off at about 120, 130, through every stop sign, every red light in Portland, got out on the Pacific Coast Highway, and he headed south uh, at about, he hit 180. Uh, again, it was the fastest motorcycle of its era. And we went for about an hour. I was crying. I felt that this was the end of my life. We were slipping in the, in the icy slush. Wow. And uh, he was just uh, screaming crazy into the night. And then finally, he did a U-turn over the midway. He screamed back, 
all the way to Oregon, all, all, the, all the way to Portland, and he dropped me off exactly where he had picked me up, which was amazing. And I kind of, I don't know, I was out of balance. I felt completely overwhelmed. And I made my way across a bridge over the ravine to my dormitory. Now, mind you, it's 11 at night, California time. So it's two at night in New York. I never answered the payphone on the wall in the common room. As soon as I entered the room, the phone was ringing and I just felt kind of pushed to pick it up. I picked it up. Hello. And it was my mom in New York. And she said, Stevie, I just had this incredible, horrible dream that you were dead. I was sweating. I was fearful. And lo and behold, I thought you were gone. And I said, Mom, you pretty much had it right. I thought I was gone too. And we talked a lot about it. And my mom was a bit of a mystic. So we kind of reflected on the fact that she had had this premonition 3,000 miles away, and it was very inexplicable, but it kind of pointed to a level of mind that really goes beyond locality, beyond this place, this biology, and has a kind of dimension that we don't properly understand. It's definitely a mystery. Yeah. And uh, by the way, if you, if you look at the scientific surveys in England, for example, about half of women at some point in their lives have had a significant premonition about a son or a daughter, and they've been right about it. Yeah. So this thing is this kind of thing is not unheard of at all. Yeah. Uh, so the story goes on, but but essentially it's a series of incredible one mind kind of premonitions. Larry Dossie was kind enough to write the forward to the book, and he's just a great writer. He's written this book, One Mind, and another book called Premonition. Yeah. He's a brilliant guy. And at any rate, you know, I wound up back in New York and working for a few years in, in uh, pediatric endocrinology and then at Penn for a little bit in immunology. But the dream got to me again and I, I quit the sciences and I went out to the University of Chicago Divinity School. I guess we're all Blue Angel Route 80 dreamers need to be. And I was able to study with Marcia Eliade who had written the great book on shamanism and also Joseph Campbell was there that year and he'd written his wonderful books too on, on the spiritual journey theme, yeah. uh, Hero with a Thousand Faces. So in the bottom of the Swift Hall and the Swift Kick coffee shop, I, I told both of those folks about my dream and what happened and the bridge and the motorcycle and a few other things that I won't go into now. And uh, Campbell said, synchronicity, not luck. And Marcia Eliade asked me, so is it all synchronicity? We talked about these things many times. Eventually, just to make a long story short, although I didn't intend it, people found out that I knew something about the sciences, but I was also interested in spiritualities and mysticism and even ethics. So I wound up teaching at the U Chicago Medical School for a couple of years, then Ann Arbor, Michigan. At that point then, this is before I went to Case Western Med for 20 years in Stony Brook, I took a job for three years at Fordham uh, the Marymount campus teaching philosophy and religious studies. Yeah. And unbelievably, uh, my office mate, Gabe Gomez, who was actually from Bangladesh, it sounds like his name is Spanish. Well, that's because there were Jesuit missionaries who went to India in, in Bangladesh in the 1500s. So he was uh, Catholic. He was a great 
scholar in world religions. He said, what got you interested in this kind of thing? And I said, well, Gabe, I had a dream when I was 15 and I explained it to him. And he said, you have to. He was, he was a small guy. He looked like E.T. He said, you've got to go to Peconico Hills, which is the town behind Terrytown. And you've got to go to the, the Union Presbyterian Church and then look at the back of the church. And I went there. It was about a 10-minute walk. And there was a huge Chagall stained glass window of the Good Samaritan. And it was filled with blue angels and symbols of all the world religions. Chagall was a very spiritual guy who understood that in the future we had to come together around love and light, and that was necessary if we were going to survive. Yeah. So I, I, I meditated there and I thought about it. And eventually I actually read a book that Chagall had written, and it was called My Life. And he says that he worked in a pickle factory. Uh, he, his dad was a Hasidic Jew, and they lived in a small Russian city. And when Chagall was 17, his dad uh, insisted that he work in the, in the factory, actually pickling herring. But Chagall didn't think that was his fate. So he left home and he went to St. Petersburg and he lived on the street. He was homeless. He sketched things for a living, for at least for months. And one evening he's in an alleyway. He actually describes this it's in the book. It's the only excerpt in the book because I thought it had to be there. And he's sleeping on a mattress. There's another homeless guy who is a carpenter work, uh, uh, sleeping next to him. And suddenly Chagall, he's not sure if he's awake or asleep, but the whole alleyway fills with blue light. And then he sees the fluttering white wings of quote unquote an angel. The angel ascends and leaves the blue light behind. And the next day, the great Mark Chagall, probably the greatest artist of the 20th century in my view, uh, did his first great painting and it's called The Apparition. And uh, it's blue and white. And it's about his angel experience. And all through his life, he said blue is the color of love. He did all his incredible windows at the UN, at the Art Institute in Chicago. And when he died, he was in his studio outside of Paris, and he was painting a blue angel. So I kind of felt, as I got to understand Chagall a little better, that I actually had a kind of, if you will, a spiritual partner in life. Because we both had these dreams when we were young and kind of followed them. And yeah. that's a strange thing to do. It's not easy on families. you know. It's not necessarily quote unquote rational, but that's what we did. I never met Chagall, of course. Uh, uh, I mean, he's long since passed away. But to bring it to a closure, there's so many stories of synchronicity. I consider the whole Chagall thing synchronicity. But when I got to Stony Brook it, uh, after 20 years at Case Western Med, living in Shaker Heights, Ohio, raising a family, 2014, I was invited back to Peconical Hills to do a lecture on the spirituality of Mark Chagall and the symbolism of his paintings. So I went to Peconical Hills, gave this wonderful talk at the Union Church. And that night I drove home over the Tappan Sea Bridge, drove out to Stony Brook. And lo and behold, late at night, I get into our house and I've got an email from a woman who's on my board of trustees. I, I run an institute called the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love, which studies spiritual experiences of a higher love than human love, a love that's not unwise, that is steady, that is not myopic, 
that is pure and so forth. That's a kind of divine love, not just a human love. And sometimes it invades people and they describe those experiences and things happen neurologically and so forth. So that's what I was interested in, in learning about. Yeah. So lo and behold, to make this very short, I've got an email from DeRay Ahmad, who's on the board, and she says that uh, the website has been taken down, and it was, I went online, and it was taken down by Team DZ ISIS. It's just the third website, and this is November 2014, that was taken down by ISIS. Uh, this is a few months after you started hearing about beheadings and the like. I did talk to the FBI about it, talked to my board of trustees, mostly from Cleveland, and we started an international essay contest for young people from all over the globe to reflect on how they push back against peer pressure to hate others just because they didn't share their beliefs. And there were cash prizes. It went really well. We got thousands of essays, and we were able to fill the entire United Nations in 2016 in August on World Youth Day. And these young people performed their award-winning essays. Some did it rap style. Others did it poetically. You know, some did it with dance. It was just all over the map, but it was great. And this was piped out to about 80 million young people worldwide through the UN system. And I kind of let the journey come to a conclusion at that point. Uh, I mean, I'm still on, if you will, Route 80. When people ask me where I'm from, I say, well, Route 80, I really, I really am. Uh, and uh, in fact, just the other day, I was doing a, a signing at bookstores in Cleveland, and I drove out from Long Island on Route 80. Yeah, you know, well, but it's all—it's a book about of these uncanny experiences, and I wrote it because, you know, I work in a very materialistic environment in the sense that it's scientific empiricism, and that's all there is. And this kind of uncanny synchronicity where just things happen that are too improbable to be explained away by statistics and so forth. Yeah. That these things are just too perfect uh, not to be somehow orchestrated or set up by a divine loving universe. I wanted people to be able to talk freely about this and to talk about their own experiences. And it's been pretty successful in allowing people to do that. That's great. What would you say has helped by allowing people to talk through that in their own lives. Is there something that you would say that if you could share one thing, the listener or the reader could take one thing from reading your book, what would that be? Well, you know, people are inhibited from talking about this reality and they shouldn't be because most people I talk to, when they read the book, their response is really positive. You look at Amazon, the reviews yeah. are just incredible, like life transforming because people feel inhibited. You know, they need to be disinhibited. They need not to be embarrassed to talk about these kinds of premonitions. You know, the guy who yeah. discovered brain waves, well, his daughter had a dream that his son had been wounded on the battlefields of World War I, and that actually was true, and that's what gave this guy the idea. It was a scientist in the UK that there was this sort of mysterious element to the brain. And so a lot of people have these experiences, a lot of great people, including physicists who have won Nobel Prizes and the like. Yeah. So I just want folks to be able to be honest and open about this because I don't think that matter, brain, tissue, cells, 
explains everything there is about being human. Yeah. Do you have a favorite quote? Or do you use quotes in your book? And well, so there, yeah. So my the editor said, well, you know, so there are twelve episodes of synchronicity and premonition in the book, all of which are pretty, pretty incredible. Awesome. Uh, but all true, and I. But you know, she thought, you know, you need pictures. There's a there's like a pit stop between each episode. Yeah. Uh, a little interlude, and you can actually see pictures of different kinds of things uh you know like the gray mercedes 190 <laughs> in the driveway and yeah, yeah. all sorts of things the cajon zone uh oh there's a story about a walking stick that was given to me when I, I didn't want to leave cleveland but there were some political difficulties at the university and i had this great offer at stony brook so that night i was i was in university circle behind glidden house it was 11 at night and this guy comes walking out of the shadows he's an african-american and he said i had a dream to come out here and give you this stick and he carved this incredibly beautiful walking stick and and he said this is for you and i said well don't you want anything for it he said forty dollars i didn't have forty dollars so my friend tom who was there with me gave him 40 bucks and i paid tom back later on mm -hmm. but uh and it's a picture of tom and so i just wanted to bring as much credibility to it and in each interlude there's a spiritual saying there are pictures and it basically brings it to life. But one, my, my favorite quote would be Eleanor Roosevelt, if you're ready, okay? Yeah, go for it. The future belongs to those who believe in the beauty of their dreams. Ah, that's beautiful. And, and I was just a kid. <clears throat> a lot of people don't take adolescent spirituality seriously. They just think it's kind of strange, but actually it can be very deep, and people have written great studies about it recently. Uh, and so this is my life. I've had a very successful life. I've accomplished a lot. Uh, uh, you know, I've written many, many articles and done a lot of scientific work and been well recognized for it and taught in some of the greatest medical schools in America and still continue to do that. But I have to say that if you ask me how I got started in my life, it's just because I had a sense of the significance of a dream, but also I had that argument with my parents about teaching in the Bronx. So there was a push and a pull. I got to say there was both, all right? I'm not sure I'd have ever made it if there wasn't a push. But even that to me was synchronicity. Yeah, that's beautiful. Well, wrapping things up here, Stephen, it's been awesome to hear the stories. I'm sure there's some more amazing ones that you could tell and I'll have to get the book and the listeners will have to, do, to hear the rest of them here. But what are you up to next, and where can the listeners connect with you online? Well, my website is Stephen, just get something out of here, Stephen G Post with a PH. So it's S T E P H E N G, like Gerard Post, P O S T dot com, Stephen Gerard Post dot com, or Unlimited Love Institute dot org, which I started with Sir John Templeton, the great philanthropist. We named it together in 2000 and funded over 70 studies in great universities from Stanford to Harvard on spiritual experiences and even were able to uh, help uh, endow a chair at Harvard on spirituality and science. So this is the book. I don't know if you can see it there. Yeah. God and Love on Route 80, The Hidden Meaning of Human Connectedness. It's got a really nice- I love that cover. Endorsement by Deepak Chopra, who's also a one mind type mystic. Yeah. And then a forward by Larry Dossie, 
and lots of good statements. I really appreciated Sister Helen Prejean, who wrote Dead Man Walking. She wrote, she wrote a great statement. So it's got lots of nice endorsements, and it's just really a clear statement. It's not meant to be philosophical so much, although there is philosophy in it a bit here and there, but yep. it's mainly just my narrative, my stories, and they're wild, they're riveting, they're exciting, they're a little shocking in some respects, <laughs> but they're also the story of a life. Well, congrats again on the book. Uh, Thanks, Eric. I really enjoyed talking to you and your stories, and uh, all the best to its continued success, and Listeners definitely have to pick it up on Amazon and go to Stephen's site. Thanks again for being on the show. Thanks, Aaron. I wish you well. I wish all your listeners well. Hey, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Daily Authors Podcast. Be sure to visit dailyauthors.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover our fantastic bonus content. 